Support for this episode comes from QCL, a leading supplier of innovative beer testing equipment to the brewing industry. QCL know quality is fundamental to any successful brewing business and have developed a range of simple-to-use products that enable you to bring quality control to your brewery. Their rapid microbiology system prevents exploding cans, sour beers, expensive recalls and protects your brand's reputation by detecting wild yeasts, diastaticus and spoilage bacteria in less than four hours. Their beer lab measures ABV, bitterness, diacetyl and many other important parameters in minutes. QCL pride themselves on technical knowledge and customer service and work with you to develop your in-house quality program to improve efficiency and product consistency. To find out more about QCL and their range of rapid testing equipment, visit the website qclscientific.com or email sales at qclscientific.com. What do Major League Baseball, the US Embassy in London, and some of the UK's most in-demand restaurants have in common? The answer is that they've all been graced with beers from Mondo Brewing Company. The London Brewery, based in Battersea, was set up by Todd Matteson and Tom Palmer in 2015, and the duo have spent the last five years dispelling the popular myth to prove that it's very much both what you know and who you know when it comes to making your way in life. And in doing so, they've ensured their excellent beers are seen far and wide. But they're not ready to stop there. Hello, and welcome to the Brewer's Journal podcast. My name is Tim Sheehan, editor of the Brewer's Journal. Few of us are unlikely to have enjoyed a beer called Relationship, a 4.8% New England Pale Ale produced by Mondo Brewing Company. That is, unless you've been able to visit the bar at the US Embassy in South London. Located just a mile up the road from the Battersea Brewery, Mondo's house beer riffs on the famed political, diplomatic, cultural and economic relations between the UK and the United States. Just don't ever accuse the team at Mondo for the name of the beer though. They can guarantee the quality of the beverage itself, but the name That was the embassy's responsibility. Every good business and every good team is greater than the sum of its parts. And for Todd Matteson and Tom Palmer, they can draw upon life experiences in beer and otherwise from the US, Germany, Spain and Japan, to name but a few. And it's these adventures that help frame who they are today. In this podcast, this particular journey kicks off back in 2013 with Tom and Todd in London. And it's the latter who picks up the story here. We met uh, working at London Fields Brewery. We were originally, I I was brewing and Todd was packaging and organizing the warehouse and uh, assisting on brews. And then we just ended up on the same shift all the time. And uh, we worked together on, uh, it was kind of a two man brew team. And then there'd be somebody cellaring and then uh, three people packaging and moving stuff around the warehouse. And we just started talking about everything that was wrong with the place. So equipment issues and, you know, being there late at night with broken pumps and stuff like that. So he initially told me, yo, I've been already planning to build a brewery of my own back in Connecticut or New York, and I've done all of this research, you know, 
you want to come back there with me? And I said, well, I've, I've, I'm kind of stuck here uh, for various reasons. And he said, okay, well, let me talk to my wife. And suddenly within a few months, you know, they, she was able to get an extension with her company to stay in the UK for longer. And we started working on taking his existing marketing research and turning it into a plan to build a brewery here. Many years before the idea of Mondo would come into focus, Tom would be taking his first steps in beer back home in the US. I got a one of those, it's like a bucket with um, dried malt extract and a couple of little pouches of hops and a package of uh, dried yeast and brewing instructions. Uh, I got one of those kits as, actually a friend of mine got it and he said, do you want to brew this beer with me? And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I'd never done it before. That was 1999. And uh, we made an American lager and fermented it in a closet in the house that he was renting a room in. And uh, it turned out not, it wasn't exactly a drain pour. It wasn't going to win any awards, but uh, we drank it all. And then we quickly realized that we both liked stouts and I started brewing irregularly with him from 1999 on until 2007 when I at that time relocated once again uh, for the third time in my life to Japan and uh, I had moved from San Francisco and the beer scene in 2007 in San Francisco was fantastic uh, you know tornado and all these historic pubs and uh, access to all kinds of really great beer Russian River and everything and I got to Japan and there were a couple of places that were doing craft beer. There were some American expats who had set up these small shipments to bring over and distribute to the craft beer bars that existed at that time. But it was really, it was kind of tough to find. So I thought, well, I know how to brew. I'll just get some ingredients and I'll start making the stuff that I liked from the Bay Area at home. A bit naive of me, but there happened to be an expat group there who were from all over the world, really. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, England, America, Canada. And I stumbled upon them and they really just gave me a comprehensive education in brewing science. And because home brewing was illegal there, it was harder to get ingredients and equipment. But these individuals were lifers in Japan and had really, uh, sort of learned how to repurpose stuff from different, you know, just from the restaurant industry and whatever to make it into brewing equipment for, for home use. And uh, I started brewing in earnest in 2008 and making a lot of stouts initially, but uh, quickly discovering IPAs and, and trying to replicate Green Flash, West Coast IPA and Pliny the Elder and Speakeasy. Uh, what was it? Prohibition. It's like a red ale. While Japan remains an incredibly important part of Tom's life, the Tohoku earthquake and disaster of April 2011, an event that claimed more than 15,000 lives, closed that particular chapter. The earthquake and tsunami happened. I was at home that day, and it was it was pretty frightening. I was I lived just north of of Tokyo by express train, so closer to uh, Fukushima. And a few days went by after the earthquake and tsunami and the U.S. government started doing volunteer evacuations. And my family was quite concerned about me. So I went back to the States and then I began traveling around Europe for a little while. 
and early visits to London would give Tom an insight into the capital's growing craft scene. So that was, um, I had been coming to the UK for a few years before that, and uh, I had discovered Colonel and um, uh, Camden was really getting off uh, the ground at that point in 2011. And I remember, you know, really searching for how to go to their tap room, and there wasn't really a tap room yet. Yeah, it was an interesting time in, in uh, the UK brewing scene. A move to Barcelona followed, where he would help brew beer for a friend's restaurant in the capital of Spain's Catalonia region. When that particular journey came to an end, Tom would return to both the US and then Japan to tie up that chapter in his life. However, at that point, Tom was set on a move to London. Through Just Sanguinis, also known as Right of Blood, through his Sicilian great-grandfather, he was able to make that happen. And while it was Tom's great-grandfather that eventually enabled him to move to the UK, it was his father, working with yeast for Budweiser in St. Louis, that gave a young Tom so many early memories in beer. Yeah, I, I was a, not a very um, well-behaved student, so I got kicked out of school uh, several times, and uh, or suspended for a few days, and uh, my mom and dad both worked, and my dad was the only one who could take care of me on a certain, you know, couple of days. So I went in with him. I can I could remember from a very early age, he worked in the yeast plant for uh, for quite a while because they made. They made bread yeast for a, a regional bread maker called Colonial Bread. And then they had their own yeast, <clears throat> which they propagated, put in kegs, and sent out by airplane to all of the Budweiser plants around the world. So the, the mother strain always comes from St. Louis, or it did at that time. I don't know what they do anymore. So his job was working in the yeast plant, taking care of the yeast, um, putting it in kegs, making sure it got moved around correctly. And he came home just stinking of Budweiser yeast. Actually, you know, if you drive down, there's this uh, freeway that goes, cuts right through St. Louis, the Highway 55. And if you drive down, you go past the Budweiser plant and just, it permeates everything for miles around it. So it's a very distinct smell. So I remember that. And then I remember him taking me to work. And I think I was 12 the, the first time I, um, one of his, co-workers walked up to a tank that had all of these in it was almost like a homer simpson style control room and they had a crate of empty beer bottles in there always and his it was always one guy's duty to go fill up those bottles for everyone on shift and they just drank while they worked <laughs> it was pretty great and they were drinking undiluted budweiser so it was probably somewhere over six percent and it was one of the best lagers i i i to this day it's a very distinct taste that i remember so that with that memory sticks in my head, you know, my dad's friend feeding me Budweiser at the age of 12. Tom's journey to Mondo took him to Japan, Spain, and beyond. His future business partner, Todd Madsen, took a different route, but one that also began in the US. Yeah, so I moved over here in 2012 for my wife's job. It was supposed to be a two-year contract. And I started homebrewing in 2006, uh, one of my cousins who was a food science major in, in university, really talented brewer, home brewer. And he really got me into it and helped me get set up with the equipment that I needed and everything. And I was brewing it in my apartment in Hoboken at the time. And then, um, and then I moved in with my, my wife uh, on the Upper East Side of New York a few years later. And so I was always brewing in these really confined spaces. But, you know, <clears throat> just like Tommy, I think the, the first brew was mediocre at best. You know, it was a Kolsch and uh, we, 
<clears throat> my friends and I drank it, uh, but we had to, you know, put some lime in there just to <laughs> hide some of the off flavors. It was, but still, you know, it, it, it really inspired me to, to keep learning and, and uh, honing my craft with that. And so it was, um, I think even after the first brew, I realized that this is something I wanted to do long-term. At the time, Todd was working in the music industry in New York, moving into digital advertising sales a year or two later, initially at Yahoo, then working for a range of startups. But the whole time, he tells us, was spent trying to find a way to continue to become a better brewer and find a way to eventually start a brewery of his own. And although his plans were to open an operation in New England, a different England would soon come into view. I remember quite vividly when my wife G-chatted me saying, oh, I just got this offer to move to London for work. And I said, oh, let's do it. You know, this is great. Uh, especially for me, selfishly, I was thinking I can finally quit my job and try and find a brewing job in, you know, in a place that's so well known for for beer. And so we moved over and the first year I kept working for the company I'd worked for in New York, uh, working from home and doing some sales over here. And then I got a job at London Fields. Uh, it was about three or four months before Tom joined and ended up that year doing some brewing school and then did my malting internship at Weirmann in, in Bamberg in Germany, which was a really cool experience. And the whole time I had been planning to, you know, finish my business plan for the for this brewery back in the States. And then like Tom said, it was kind of one of those things that that conversation kept evolving and, and suddenly we realized, yeah, we should do something here. Over the years, both Todd and Tom have experienced great beer. And how can we put it? Beer that's less than great. Having seen quality and consistency at both ends of the spectrum, striving for the very best is an attitude they've had with Mondo since day one. In London and the UK in general, where in the early days it was all over the place, you know, I think we're seeing now so many more breweries investing in the proper equipment like centrifuges and, you know, things like that to, you know, uh, building out a proper lab. So we've built out a, a proper lab a couple of years ago and, you know, all these little things to help with that quality and consistency. And the great thing is, if everyone's doing that, then it's only going to, you know, to help give people kind of, you know, confidence in, in what they're drinking and, and, and really help to just elevate the whole scene. To Todd's earlier point, I, I remember, you know, vividly in the 1990s, uh, my, you know, small, they called them microbreweries. What else did they call them? There was another name for them. The, these little brew pubs in my hometown where the, the beers were just, a lot of them were drain pours. They were terrible. But those, those businesses survived because of the newness and the, and the, the niche-ness of the market. And then I remember in Japan in the um, early 2000s, same thing. All of these, Japan changed the regulations for what it took to become a brewery in 1996, I think. They lowered the annual volume you needed to produce in order to get a license. And it opened the door for a lot of hotel and restaurant chains to get into producing their own product because if they didn't have to buy from the big brewers, they, they, could, they could brew a bunch of different styles and they could control the, the cost. And that ended up being a lot of really bad beer in Japan. And so fast forward to 2008 when I joined this uh, sort of underground forum group of mostly expats. Uh, I, I don't think there were any native Japanese on the group, but we did communicate with another group of native Japanese homebrewers. And the topic of conversation a lot was how bad the local craft breweries were. There were only one or two that were making something that was 
comparable to what was happening at that point now in the States. And so there was a really strong emphasis among the group to do better than that, to do better than what the local craft breweries were doing, to, to have a higher standard and to excel, to have a consistent product. From that group that I was in, I think there were about around 21 people average who participated uh, on a weekly basis in these discussions of recipe development, finding ingredients, uh, building your own home system, all of these. And we, we also talked a lot of shit. There was just this ongoing sort of pressure from the more established members of the group because a lot of them had won the Japan National Homebrew Competition and participated in American Homebrew Association events over in the States. It, it was just a constant pushing, pushing, pushing to be the best, to brew better than the person, the other people in the group. And funny enough, from that group, uh, something like eight people went on to either start a brewery, me included, or, or to work somewhere at some reputable brewery around the world. So it was a, a really unique experience to be a part of. And uh, it was where I kind of began to really focus in my own beer production that I need to be able to repeat the results. It can't just be good. And for Tom, that's showing you can make beer consistently, regardless of the ingredients you're playing with or the style you're putting out. I also have to be able to make the same thing over and over. And if I'm going to experiment, then, then truly experiment and do something weird. But that should also be good. Every step that goes along with the experimentation process should be up to um, you know, the, the best brewery standards you can think of, the highest standard operating uh, procedures that, that there are which usually trickle down from places like Budweiser. The reason Budweiser is so consistent is because the standards are so high. So we just took that, Todd and I, there was one thing that we gelled on immediately besides alt beer. We both loved alt beer. We took that as sort of our ethos that we were going to, because let's face it, London Fields at that time, I, I haven't had their beers in a long time, but we were brewing the beers and they were all over the place. We would be looking at different guiles of Hackney Hopster and they would be wildly different in color, in taste, in um, carbonation. And we were like, this isn't right. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be settling for this. And so with the tools that we had there, we did the best that we could. But we quickly knew that we couldn't continue to put our name on that product because it wasn't, you could call it Hack, Hackney Hopster every week, but it was a different beer every time we brewed it. We've done a bunch of uh, collaborations with breweries from around the world, uh, but I think for Todd and I, uh, pulling off the uh, Major League Baseball coup from the big breweries two years ago was, that was a pretty big highlight. We had this wild idea that we would brew beers for both teams, and then suddenly a friend of ours in New York, in Brooklyn, got in on the idea. He's an import-export guy, and he's like, well, I'll set you guys up with two breweries in New York and two in in uh, Boston and uh, we'll ship all the beer over. We're like, okay, we'll have a big party. And then suddenly Major League Baseball got wind of it and um, they were like, oh yeah, you can put the logo on your cans. So here we are, this tiny brewery in, in Battersea and we've got Major League Baseball logo on our cans. And growing up, at, my, my dad worked for Budweiser. Budweiser owned the St. Louis football and baseball Cardinals. And so we had tickets every year. And some of my earliest memories are being on the bleachers and and watching, 
you know, I, I didn't go to any of the 82 World Series games, but you know, it was a huge thing in our house and I had the t-shirts and stuff and the Cardinals are, you know, the second or third most winning team in the, uh, the history of, of Major League Baseball. Todd's a huge Red Sox fan. I think they're the second most winning team. The fucking Yankees being the first. Uh, but anyway, so having all of that happen, getting tickets to the game, being in touch with, you know, Major League Baseball itself, it was just, uh, it, it gave me great joy. You know, I took some cans home to my parents who would display them on their like trophy case, which is cool. I just, I loved it. It was fantastic. While Mundo has played its own part in becoming part of the Major League Baseball community, they've also cemented their position in the local community around the brewery too. We, we've known a lot of people in the area, you know, since day one, we've uh, started to see the same faces pop up. But I think it's really since lockdown that, you know, when we, we transitioned to being a, um, we started packing orders for uh, national delivery and uh, Friday and Saturday pickup at the beginning of lockdown, we started to see their names and, you know, recognize who these people were. And we began writing these little messages on the boxes, you know, thanks for supporting us. Uh, can't wait to see you again when the tap room is open. And the moment the tap room opened, it just was a flood of local support. It was the same familiar faces we see all the time coming in, saying how glad they were that we were able to open back up, how much they missed the, the community that we had built over the last few years. Plus a lot of new customers, you know, people that had been drinking Mondo, but didn't know where we were, you know, they just, because it's where we are, it's not a high street, right? So you, you have to, it's a destination uh, venue, right? So you have to know it's here. And so a lot of people, uh, we had a lot of new customers that, again, people that were like, oh, I drink your beer at, you know, this pub or the Picture House Cinemas or wherever it was, and <clears throat> never knew you guys were just, you know, a 15 minute walk away, which is kind of disconcerting but also you know it it was um it was an opportunity for us to 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 build our local audience you know which again going back to how the, the this pandemic is horrific there's no doubt about it but what happened was a lot of locals were forced to start using the road in front of our brewery to make their way to Battersea Park so they could get out and get some sunshine you know for that hour of exercise or to take the kids you know away from their uh confined quarters they were in, whatever it was. So we just ended up naturally, because of lockdown, getting people passing by with a greater amount of footfall and looking over and saying, oh, it actually says brewery on that building. For Todd, he believes the pandemic has altered consumer behavior in the long term. The consumer buying behavior is, in my opinion, has changed for good. and. In the States, you saw a lot more of that already, but here you didn't. It was, you know, people just because the pub is such an important part of your social life, you know, and a part of your community, that was always the biggest thing. And, and people typically buying beer at the supermarkets, they were buying whatever was available there, which recently, obviously, the the, the choices have become better, but, but then people were forced into buying directly from a brewery and they think, okay, this is this is fantastic. I can get fresh beer directly from the brewery next day or go and collect it. And so even when lockdown lifted, our web shop was still doing really well because people just got used to that. And um, I think that that's, that's a long-term change, uh, which is great for, for everybody involved, you know? 
And going forward, the duo have even bigger plans for the future, both in London and further afield. Dream would be to have a farm property where we can have, you know, it, it'd be a sizable production facility, but have a visitor center, have a farm to table restaurant. And that's still very much in the plans. Obviously with what's going on now, those plans have been pushed back a bit, but it's still something that we will uh, plan to do. And the idea is always to keep this location as kind of our flagship, you know, um, obviously with the power station development continuing to, you know, to be built, it's it's a great opportunity for us to be in this in, in this location. But yeah, the, the larger facility is something that we still have plans to undoing. And I think it will be a really cool opportunity. In addition to that, we've been uh, kicking around the idea of pizza and beer in a, 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 a Southwest London tap room, not this place. So we, uh, both huge fans of pizza. He he comes from uh, a, a place where thin crust pizza is world renowned. It's lesser known that St. Louis also has thin crust pizza, but we've recently discovered another kind of pizza that we're very interested in. It would be great to explore something like that, something that unique in London. And I mean, pizza and beer, how can you go wrong? Away from bricks and mortar itself, Mondo Brewing Company considers itself work in progress. Work in Progress is an open, decentralized group of breweries that aspire to be a more inclusive and representative beer industry. They're committed to taking action in businesses and forging links with communities to increase opportunities and promote collaboration between brewers and underrepresented groups in society. There's uh, all kinds of cultural shifts happening. There are uh, dynamics there are the old dynamics and then there's the new dyna dynamics. Um, there's underrepresentation within our industry that we see all the time and it's starting to change and it needs help. It needs everyone to recognize that that change is good and that um, it's needed and it equals uh, a greater experience for everyone from uh, the production side of making beer to the uh, advertising side of, of promoting beer to the enjoyment of beer. So we just, we recognized a, a bit of a lack of diversity with our own uh, team and thought, you know what, we need, to, we need to do more. We need to, we're a work in progress. We need to address changes. We need to uh, come to grips with the institutional inequalities that exist. You know, as uh, people from our backgrounds, we, we don't necessarily think about or, or have to look at those inequalities on a daily basis and much to our uh, marketing and events uh, manager's credit. He made sure to bring it to our attention and we were on board from day one. So he, he created this idea of being a work in progress and, and we've just, we've let him run with it. This part of the business, driven from the start by Tom Harrison, has helped the team become a part of things that they maybe hadn't considered before. So uh, that led to really immediately just looking for projects and um, opportunities where we can do whatever we can to help promote underrepresented groups within the brewing industry. Black is Beautiful, for, for what it's worth, we are huge fans of the, the movement in general and that opportunity to make that beer was just a lot of fun. We put our own little twist on it. Uh, we've recently done a beer with a Queer Brewing Project that'll be coming out soon. Uh, it was a lot of fun to make it. Um, it's finished fermenting. It's uh, conditioning now. 
we're taking a small portion of it and we are aging it in Pinot Noir uh, barrel, French oak. So it's uh, whatever we can do to help raise awareness and for everyone to have a shot like we had. One of the biggest frustrations as owners of, of a business in this industry is that whenever we do have a job opening and we post the job, the fact of the matter is, is we we don't get a lot of, you know. We get one demographic. Yeah, it's, it's and, and, and <laughs> you know, thinking, okay, how can we facilitate change to to make it more diverse and and what what is it what is it that we can be doing to to help with that it's but it is it is a problem i read a a comment from garrett oliver and i i am probably misquoting him but he said something to the effect that in his 30 years or so of of being the brewmaster at brooklyn he hadn't once seen an application from someone who looks like him and that was that was shocking and that means simply trying their best and we're not trying to proselytize no. or pretend that we are, no. um, you know, doing something holier than thou. We are simply trying to recognize a a hole in the uh, the industry and be a part of the solution. The Brewers Journal podcast is a production of Reby Media. Produced and hosted by me, Tim Sheehan. Sound engineering is by Ross McPherson. Series supervision is by John Young. The executive producer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Todd Matteson and Tom Palmer at Mondo Brewing Company of Battersea, London.